Broadcast friends, welcome back to a brand new week of broadcasts here on Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight as every night all the way from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it's currently 2 in the afternoon on Tuesday. But uh, for those of you back in North America, I wish you a good evening, and I hope you are having a good evening right now and are ready for tonight's conversation because right off the top, we're going to bring up tonight's guest, a very, very interesting conversation to be had here. Tonight we're going to be talking to Robert B. Stinnett of the Independent Institute. He's a research fellow at the Independent Institute at independent.org. He's also the author of A of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor, and he served in the U.S. Navy from 1942 to 1946, where he, where he earned 10 battle stars and a presidential unit citation. He's been a journalist and photographer for the Oakland Tribune. He was a consultant for the BBC and Asahi and NHK television uh, uh, on the Pacific War. And in 1986, he resigned his position at the Tribune to devote his full-time research to this book, Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor. So, Robert B. Stinnett, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for joining us tonight. Yes, thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Well, it's excellent to have you here, and I'm very excited to talk about Pearl Harbor. It's a subject that we've touched on on the broadcast before, but we haven't gone into in great detail before, so I'm interested to do that. But before we get into that, this is your first time on the program, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your uh, your background and especially your, your time in the Navy. Yes, yeah, so, uh, I was on the staff of the Oakland Tribune, and before that, uh, in World War II, I was a, a Navy photographer, with the Pacific Fleet and uh, aboard an aircraft carrier and uh, aboard the ship uh, our photo officer was uh, an George Bush that eventually became uh, President Bush he was the first President Bush and I was one of the uh, aerial photographers and he was the photographic aerial photographic officer very interesting, and unlike uh, some of the other members of his family and other presidential candidates in recent times, he actually did serve in the forces and was there in World War II. So that is interesting. But um, but so you were working at the Tribune, and you actually quit in 1986 to start the full time research for this book. Um, was it was it your work at the Tribune that made you want to do this book, or was it something else that that sparked your interest in Pearl Harbor? Well, uh, I served four years at the U.S. Navy. And we were never told about uh, breaking the Japanese uh, Navy's uh, operation code. And in 1982, I read in a book called Day of Deceit that the U.S. Navy had operated a monitor station in the Pearl Harbor Naval Yard. And uh, that was all news to me. I'd never heard that before. I went to my editor at the Oakland Tribune and suggested that that might be a, a good uh, topic with the December 7th, 1982 edition of the paper, because newspapers at that time would uh, honor uh, events like uh, uh, Pearl Harbor and uh, Navy Day, that sort of thing. And he, uh, the editor, agreed. I went over to uh, Pearl Harbor and filed FOIAs with the Navy. They let me into this monitor station. I met some of the... Uh, 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 cryptographers that had served there. They were 
guides for the USS uh, Arizona Memorial. So they told me how they did it. Absolutely fascinating. Well, we're going to be getting into that tonight on the broadcast, but we have our first break coming up, so we'll leave it there, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you want to get in on tonight's broadcast and ask some questions with Robert Beast in it about Pearl Harbor, you're more than welcome to get in at 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. We'll get you up and on the air, and just stay, stay, stay tuned right there. We'll be right back after these messages. back, friends. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio with your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we're talking to Robert E. Stinnett, the author of Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor, which is, of course, available through Amazon and through uh, book retailers all across the country and around the globe. And uh, tonight we're going over the, the very interesting uh, information that Mr. Stinnett was able to uncover about Pearl Harbor and uh, just reading from the, the book information here, In Day of Deceit, Robert Stinnett delivers the definitive final chapter on America's greatest secret and our worst military d- disaster. Drawing on 20 years of research and access to scores of previously classified documents, Stinnett proves that Pearl Harbor was not an accident, a mere failure of American intelligence, or a brilliant Japanese military coup. So certainly I think it will probably not come as much of a surprise to much of my audience that we have been misled about the, the true nature of Pearl Harbor for many years. But perhaps people out there don't know all of the details. So, Mr. Stinnett, perhaps we can start tonight by talking about the, uh, the general state of the information and research on this subject before you started your book, and then we can get into the research that you conducted. Uh, yes, uh, the, uh, the, the first... Uh, Anything I had, as I said earlier, was uh, the, the book, uh, Day of the Sea, talking about the monitor station at uh, Pearl Harbor in the Navy Yard. And I went over there for the Oakland Tribune to, to do a story for the December 7th, uh, 1982 edition, commemorating of the attack. And it was there that I learned uh, or got confirmation that there was such a station. Uh, it was still there. And I met the uh, uh, cryptographers who, who were acting as guides at the time. So let's talk about some of the information that you discovered during the course of your research. Again, uh, nearly two decades spent researching this book and um, spending full time uh, in, in the archives and going through the Freedom of Information Act requests to get information out. So let's talk about some of the documents that you started to uncover. Yeah, so I think the most important document it was uh, uh, from October 8th 1940 when uh, President Roosevelt uh, adopted a Navy plan to get Japan to attack our Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor and uh, it, the uh, plan arose uh, of uh, the, uh, the uh, our country uh, moving the uh, actually it was called the U. United States fleet in uh, in October 1940. It was moved from the west coast of uh, United States to Pearl Harbor and, and kept there uh, uh, as part of this plan that called for uh, uh, provoking Japan. 
Japan to attack us. And there were eight uh, provocations that President Roosevelt adopted uh, uh, and uh, put in effect uh, uh, immediately after he talked uh, with the Pacific, uh, the police uh, admiral in the White House in, uh, on October 8, 1940. And then, and then in 1941, he put these uh, eight provocations in uh, in place. Uh, this included uh, sending American cruiser task forces into Japanese territorial waters, keeping the fleet there at uh, Pearl Harbor, and uh, putting embargoes uh, of natural resources, steel against Japan, making arrangements uh, with the British and the Dutch uh, to do the same. Uh, so who drafted that document, and was it signed off on by FDR? Yeah, yes, that, uh, the Navy plan was from uh, Lieutenant Commander Arthur McCollum, who was, a, who was born in Japan of uh, Baptist uh, missionary parents. And so he learned Japanese language and culture first, and then uh, English later. So, so he was the one that uh, came up with a plan, and that President Roosevelt adopted. And the reason he did that was the American opposition to uh, joining in the war in the European war uh, that Britain was facing against Germany in 1940. And in in, in the fall of 1940, the uh, German Air Force bombing London relentlessly, and it looked like that uh, Great Britain and the United Kingdom would be defeated. So uh, that's why the president uh, adopted this plan to end the isolation movement uh, in the United States, who didn't want anything to do with Europe's war. It was not known as uh, World War I, World War II as yet. It certainly wasn't, and as you say, of course, Pearl Harbor did provide that uh, spectacular event that did get the American public motivated for war and uh, and making it into World War II. And uh, since you started in the Navy in 1942, I, I'm assuming that you yourself were, were motivated by what happened at Pearl Harbor. Well, yes, I believed all the uh, information that was released at the time, uh, that it was a sneak attack, that the uh, Japanese fleet... Uh, the attack Pearl Harbor was on radio silence, and our radio direction finders not picked them up, and it was a, a total surprise. But then, in, starting in 1982, I first learned that was not true. All right, so the document that you're talking about, the, the declassified McCollum memo, uh, shows how basically the, the United States was maneuvering Japan into the situation where they, they would uh, mount an attack in order to, to draw the U.S. into the World War II. But, but let's, let's draw out from there. Let's, let's talk about some of the other pieces of this puzzle, because as I, uh, my understanding is not very, very good on this point, but I understand that the uh, Japanese naval codes had already been cracked by this point. Uh, the, the Japanese... Naval Code was called, in, in Japanese, uh, uh, Code Book D, Edition 7. And the United States Navy called it the Five Number Code because five numbers uh, represented a Japanese word or phrase. And uh, that, was, uh, that, that was 
broke it in July 1941. So we were reading the Japanese operations code, and also we had broken their radio call sign codes that each Japanese warship was known by. Like the commander carriers, he had a call sign that was called 8-U-NA. There was the number 8, and then in Katakana, U-Y-U and N-A. So whenever he hit the airwaves, 8-U-NA, the the cryptographers uh, at Pearl Harbor knew this was Commander Carriers that was doing the passing information. Exactly right. So so let's get into some of the specifics of how the attack unfolded and who knew what when. Um, recently, there was a report from U.S. News uh, and World Report uh, that just came out just this uh, last month of a new declassified memo uh, that apparently FDR had on his desk apparently uh, uh, the week before uh, Pearl Harbor, a uh, 20-page uh, memo that was just declassified from the FBI file showing that once again there was uh, foreknowledge of the, the attack that was uh, that was about to take place. So let's, let's set the stage for the week before the attack and what types of intelligence was on the table already. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, the Japanese Navy secreted a, a Japanese spy in, in the Pearl Harbor uh, uh, area. He was attached to the Japanese consulate. And he was, a, uh, he was an ensign in the Navy. He spoke a little bit of English, but his his main job was to, uh, uh, originally, when he landed in uh, uh, Hawaii on in March 1941, to get a census of the, uh, at that time, it was called the Pacific Fleet. And so he did that uh, his first few months, and then beginning in August uh, and in the fall of '41, started preparing bomb plots of the uh, Pearl Harbor anchorage. Well, all the time he would send the messages back uh, uh, in in code, but the FBI was following him because they knew that he was a spy. And the reason they knew that was he was out on the foreign. Uh, uh, a list of a, uh, the foreign office of the Japanese uh, government. Uh, and, uh, so they started following him, and uh, they would even send the messages over RCA communications from Honolulu to Tokyo. We intercepted those uh, messages, so we knew what he was doing, but we let him move because uh, he was revealing how... Uh, Japan was reacting to the eight provocations, uh, uh, which were also being placed uh, in, in effect by President Roosevelt. And to be clear, that was months ahead of the uh, time. Yes, yeah, so well, it, it, it started in uh, October 8, 1941. The very next day, the President ordered the Secretary of Navy to begin preparations uh, for war. And uh, then uh, by November, you know, about a month later, Japan somehow got the information they were planning this, uh, uh, getting Japan into the war. So they appointed uh, uh, Admiral Yamamoto to be head of the uh, operations of the Japanese fleet. And then he started planning the Pearl Harbor attack. That leaked to the... American Embassy in Tokyo in January 41. Again, 
uh, it was uh, the, the the American embassy blasted the news uh, to back to Washington, and then in April of '41, uh, the cryptographers discovered a, uh, a, a the Japanese uh, aircraft carriers were named into a uh, a task force called the First Air Fleet. So uh, again, right. they knew. Very, very interesting. Um, we're coming up on another break. We'll leave it right there. But again, if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443, and we'll be back right after this. Radio friends, James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Robert B. Stinnett, the author of Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR, and Pearl Harbor. And we're getting into some of the specifics about who knew what when when it came to the day that will live in infamy as it has become known. And there are a lot of specifics to get into, so I certainly hope that you will uh, pick up a copy of Day of Deceit so you can get more into this and, and see some of the documents and that, uh, that Mr. Stinnett managed to uncover but as a testament to that research that he was doing, uh, Mr. Stinnett, I understand that you were able to to uncover in the uh, National Archives Depository a set of code intercept records that, well, presumably no one was ever meant to find, as apparently a copy of those were destroyed in Washington in the 1940s to prevent anyone from uh, from seeing it, basically anyone who was looking into what happened at Pearl Harbor. But you were able to find a duplicate copy that had survived in California. Perhaps you can tell us about that. Yes, the, uh, the uh, I call those, and the Navy called them intercepts, and it was the station was called Station Hypo at, at Pearl Harbor. Uh, Hypo was the, uh, uh, the Navy phonetic name for for Hawaii, and so they call it Station Hypo. So they were intercepting about a thousand Japanese messages every twenty four hours, uh, and. Uh, uh, then, then, then they would uh, take the messages and uh, analyze what was was happening, uh, Japanese orders, and uh, the, the, after the uh, they, after they were analyzed, then uh, they, they were prepared in uh, a summary for Admiral Husband Kimmel, who was the commander of the Pacific Fleet. So he had a chance to see uh, the most important messages during the past 24 hours. Well, I found these messages in uh, in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. They were released by President Jimmy Carter in 1979. And uh, the Navy uh, was in the habit of making about six copies of of, of uh, of these messages, and they sent them around. So some were dis- were destroyed uh, uh, apparently after the war, but the, the main ones that Admiral Kimmel had were saved, and those are the ones that I found. 
extremely interesting. And of course, that speaks to the other side of all of this. Of course, there is all the foreknowledge and warnings and, and things that, uh, that happened before the attack that show that certainly um, FDR and others knew about the attack ahead of time. But more importantly, perhaps there's been the decades-long cover-up of who knew what when with the destruction of records and other such things. But before we get more into that, Particularly, I had actually an email when I had announced that you would be on the program. I've had a number of emails of people suggesting to have you on the program because of your, your work um, writing Day of Deceit. But one of the, uh, the people who wrote in to, to suggest a question uh, wanted to suggest something along those lines because uh, it was in the Belmont, California Depository of the National Archives, if, if I'm not mistaken, if he's not mistaken, that you found those records and those are the same archives where uh, you did the research for your book on George Bush, George H.W. Bush, um, his World War II years. And uh, the, the question from the listener was, was it during your research for the Bush book that you ran across the Pearl Harbor files? And was this, in fact, what you were looking for all along, i.e., was this a, a pretext to get into the archives to find this information? Well, well no, no, it was, uh, I, had, uh, I had never heard when I was in the Navy for four years, we were never told that we had broken the Japanese code. So, as I said earlier, it was when I read in 1982 of the uh, uh, Day of Deceit that we had this the monitor station in uh, in Hawaii, and uh, there I met the cryptographers there, and they told me that I would find uh, records in National Archives. I did go to the National Archives which is located uh, just south of San Francisco in a city called San Bruno. But uh, none of the cryptography records were there. I learned that they were in uh, in Washington, D.C. So then I went to Washington, D.C. and found the, the original records uh, there. And uh, uh, these were the records that were, were released uh, by President Jimmy Carter in 1979. So when I was starting to see them in 1985, they were uh, these were all the originals and the original uh, uh, Navy uh, 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 preparations, uh, and just as they were prepared in 1941. Well, it is fascinating to hear about this because it really does beg the question of why no one had done this research before you. Was it simply the fact that no one knew that this, these records would be there and thus never thought to look for them, or was there some other reason that no one was looking into this issue? Well, I don't know why. Uh, Amazon.com says, there, uh, according to their records, there's about 3,500 uh, Pearl Harbor books uh, uh, in, currently in print both fiction and nonfiction. And so those authors, uh, they had the same opportunity that I did, uh, but they never uh, interviewed uh, any of the cryptographers. Uh, I think they uh, really believed uh, that the uh, Pearl Harbor attack was a surprise attack, and uh, it was not known. So they didn't pursue that. Uh, it is strange. But I had this newspaper inquisitive uh, reporter instinct. And, uh, mm. Well, then again, it's a testament to hard work and uh, keeping an open mind on the issue. So let's leave it there. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. 
Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com tonight with Robert B. Stinnett, of, the author of Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor, going over the specifics of Pearl Harbor and the lead-up to the, the attack and who knew what when. And, of course, the other half of that story is the cover-up that followed for decades afterwards, so we'll get into that presently. But before we do, let me just uh, add that there's still time for anyone who wants to uh, ask a question or get in on tonight's conversation of course, you can phone in at 1-800-313-9443. So, Mr. Stinnett, perhaps we should start talking about some of the, uh, the, th- the, the things that happened as a result of Pearl Harbor. Obviously, not only the, the uh, embroiling of America in World War II, but also the way that certain people were scapegoated for the supposed intelligence failure, when in fact, as, as we know, it was not an intelligence failure at all. And I'm referring specifically to the top brass in Hawaii, Pacific Fleet Commander Admiral Husband Kimmel, and Lieutenant General Walter Short. So perhaps you can tell listeners a, a bit about how these uh, officers were treated in the wake of Pearl Harbor. Yes, uh, they were the Hawaiian commanders, one for the uh, Pacific Fleet, that was Admiral Kimmel, and then the uh, Army, the U.S. Army, was uh, uh, Lieutenant General Short. Uh, but uh, the on November 25th, uh, the, uh, the, the cryptographers, uh, over intercepted the commander carriers of Japan uh, uh, using the radio uh, facilities of the carrier Akagi, which was the flagship of the Hawaii force. And he was in extensive communications. And uh, Admiral Kimmel was told about this, and, and he realized uh, that the, the, the force was in the North Pacific, this is the force of the of the carriers, and so he sent a special message back to Washington. What do I do? What are the orders? And so uh, President Roosevelt waited about two days and then sent the orders to uh, both uh, Admiral Kimmel and the Army sent it to General Short. And he said uh, the direct orders of the U.S. Uh, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. Uh, stand aside and let them uh, 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 commit the first overt act. Uh, don't jeopardize your defense, but don't commit any action. Let them uh, uh, place the uh, the overt act in in, in effect. And that overt act goes back to that Lieutenant uh, Commander McCollum of October 1940, and that's what happened. Uh, uh, and then, uh, then of course, after the attack was successfully uh, uh, executed by Japan, then they were the, the Hawaiian commanders were blamed uh, uh, for uh, their election of duty. But General MacArthur in the Philippines received the same orders. He did the very same thing: kept his uh, aircraft and on the ground and let Japan. Uh, attacked us at uh, Clark Field and other Air Force bases in the Philippines, and he was given the Congressional Medal of Honor. But uh, Admiral Kimmel and General Short were forced to retire. Uh, they did. Uh, President Roosevelt, of course, didn't want it to leak out that this was an engineered uh, uh, ruse to get Japan uh, to uh, attack the Pearl Harbor and get us into World War II. But the real culprit that uh, Roosevelt was after was to get the war with Germany because uh, 
Japan can be neutralized at any time just by throwing a, a blockade around it because Japan does not have natural resources as required uh, resources from the Southeast Asia like oil and, and uh, tin and that sort of thing. Now, certainly Kimmel and Short were scapegoated and, and really were forced to retire, as, as you say. But as I understand it, in 1999, so um, we're talking 57 to 58 years after the attack, the United States Senate uh, uh, passed a resolution exonerating both uh, Kimmel and Short. Yes, uh, both, uh, both the House representatives and the Senate uh, passed a resolution. But it was, uh, it was tied to the, uh, the president had to... Uh, Restore their ranks. See, when they when they uh, resigned, they they were lowered, uh, as I said earlier, uh, in, in ranks. But the the uh, Congress resolution was to restore their original ranks. But the president had, had to do that. But also, uh, Admiral Kimmel wrote a book. Uh, it's very strange that he didn't cite in the book that he was told to stand aside and let Japan commit the first overt act. That would have exonerated him, uh, and he published this in his memoirs, and it was 1954. Uh, but he did not put that in his book. It should have done that. And his uh, family that are trying to restore his name, they don't ever cite that. It's very strange that they don't uh, do that. Uh, uh, to me, that's a, was a perfect excuse, uh, and you could not blame, blame him for that. Well, it is strange on one level, but I think it must be understandable that another so sh- so soon after the attack, I-, I I know that there's still a lot of resistance to the idea that America knew about uh, Pearl Harbor beforehand and uh, and FDR and others let it happen. But uh, there must have been even that, that much more resistance to it during that uh, that time shortly after the war had ended. Well, that's right. Uh, this, this this provoking your enemy to attack us was not new. Uh, it had happened. Uh, in the Mexican War under President Polk, uh, it had happened at uh, the Civil War at Abraham Lincoln at Fort Sumner. We had it in the Spanish-American War uh, at the blowing up of the USS Maine. And it goes way back to uh, times of Plato uh, where uh, provocations were used by telling the noble lie that uh, so-and-so is uh, going to attack us and so we've got to protect ourselves and attack them first. Yes, indeed. In fact, that's the history that I think most of my, my listeners will, will probably be up to speed on by now. It's a, a topic that we've come back to many times, that so many wars are started by duplicity of one sort or another. And unfortunately, World War II and America's uh, embroilment in that war was uh, no exception, as you've um, meticulously documented in this book. Once again, Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor. So um, it raises the question in my mind, obviously, there, there must have been a core cadre of people within the ranks that, that knew about this and this information and, and did have to ultimately cover it up for a number, uh, a number of years until, until researchers like yourself started to uncover this story. How many people, in your estimation, were actively involved in, in really knowing about the, the attack beforehand? Well, uh, of course, first of all, the cryptographers, they were actually uh, intercepting and breaking the Japanese code as messages, these 1,000 messages a day. And then, of course, President Roosevelt, uh, the Secretary of Navy, the Secretary of War, and the Commander the General Marshal of the uh, United States Army, and uh, uh, Admiral Stark, 
who was the chief of naval operations, uh, and their military members of their staff knew about it. But they felt this was the right thing to do because uh, uh, America, 80% of Americans wanted nothing to do with Europe's war. And uh, the, uh, the Roosevelt administration believed that we needed to get in it before uh, Germany uh, attacked Great Britain and, and invaded Britain and seized the British fleet and merged it with the Nazi Navy and uh, come over here uh, into North America and attack the United States. Uh, they, they could have done that from Bermuda or other British islands uh, if they had conquered uh, the United Kingdom. So to be clear, you did uh, interview a number of those cryptographers for your book, did you? Yes, uh, I interviewed the, uh, the chief. Uh, uh, he's called the traffic chief. Uh, his name is Homer Kisner. And he, he, I write about him in the book, and they have pictures of him. He was the one that uh, uh, was in charge of all of the radio cryptographers, and uh, there were about 65 of them in, uh, in the Pearl Harbor Navy Yard uh, working 24-7 uh, intercepting the messages. And, and then Kisner would uh, uh, organize the, the thousand messages, putting the most important ones on top, and deliver them to Station Hypo, who in turn would uh, summarize them and give them to Admiral Kimmel, and who would forward them on to Washington. That's how the chain of command worked. Absolutely fascinating. Very interesting indeed. So, um, so in your estimation, the most of the people who were involved in, in that work specifically in the cryptography work were doing it for, for reasons of, uh, of, uh, I guess, patriotism. They believed that they were doing the right thing for their country. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they thought that, uh, that the American parents that they were the ones that were protesting whose sons had been, uh, harmed or killed. In World War One, we didn't want to get into that again. And uh, but the American military force and the Roosevelt administration felt that we had to stop Hitler, and the only way to do it was uh, uh, getting uh, Japan, who was part of the Axis movement. Japan, Italy, and Germany were the Axis, and uh, they all agreed that if one was attacked, the, the others would come. The raid, and that's what happened. Uh, once uh, Japan attacked, they attacked us at Pearl Harbor. Uh, the Hitler went before his parliament and asked uh, for a state of war to be uh, leveled against the United States, and that's what President Roosevelt asked our Congress to do: find a state of war. They didn't declare war; it was a state of war. That's what uh, uh, Japan did also in the Diet. Uh, which is their parliament. So once again, a, a war um, was waged on the debt backs of the 2,402 dead Americans and 1,282 wounded. Um, quite a, a staggering toll. And um, it, I, I can imagine, I can understand, I suppose, in one sense, what uh, what people must have been thinking and going through in, in weighing the different uh, uh, options at hand, but, uh, but still um, to be participants in the death of 2,400 of your, your comrades and to not uh, not spill the beans, as it were, in the wake of that must be, I think, a diff difficult decision to make. Well, the, the, uh, the, 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 it, was, it, was, it was mostly almost 3,000 uh, 
people who were killed at uh, Pearl Harbor, and, and then tens of thousands in the Philippines. Uh, but uh, uh, just in Pearl Harbor alone, it was a lucky hit that the Japanese bombers, uh, a bomb went down this stack, the smokestack of the USS Arizona, and hit their magazine. And most of the those that were killed, the naval personnel killed at Pearl Harbor, were from the USS Arizona. So President Roosevelt was willing to sacrifice maybe a, a thousand people for this. But as I said, uh, this wasn't the first time that American soldiers or, or sailors were sacrificed uh, uh, for the good of the rest of the population. Well, as you alerted, alluded to earlier, your background in, in journalism may have helped you in, in first finding the story and then and then uncovering it and, and looking at it and going where the facts led you. But I, I imagine that there are many who uh, were either uh, World War II veterans or were members of that generation who uh, for for whom it would be too painful to open up this uh, story. Uh, what's your experience in, in how the uh, veterans and others uh, of your generation have, have um, accepted or, or perhaps rejected this information? Well, uh, as a member of the news media and the Oakland Tribune, one of uh, our, my, my jobs was to listen to police radios when you have a fire or a shooting or, or, or some kind of an emergency, the, the police uh, headquarters would, would radio to their uh, squad cars to go to a certain spot. Well, I, was, I understood all that. That's how we would uh, find out about news stories. Well, that's what the same thing that the Japanese Navy was doing. They were sending radio messages to their warships to go to uh, Hawaii, go to Wake Island, go to Guam. And uh, so the cryptographers, the Navy cryptographers, were doing the same thing that I did and other uh, news persons in, in uh, news gathering throughout the world used that uh, in the police radios or fire department radios. That's where you get the first lead. And that's what uh, the U.S. Navy did, and that was a smart thing to do. Uh, and they broke the codes. Uh, I had to uh, to break the codes uh, for the Oakland Police Department uh, to, to get their codes for shootings and fires, that sort of thing. So I understood all that. Uh, those that don't have that experience, uh, it'll be a little hard to understand about doing that. It certainly would. And uh, absolutely, as you say, the experience kind of led you in that direction and, and, and made it easier for you to understand that. So I, I do see how that works. Um, how has uh, the book been received generally and um, and uh, by people of, of your generation specifically? Well, uh, my book has been published uh, throughout the world, not only in the United States and Canada, but in Italy and uh, Germany and Poland, uh, in the United Kingdom uh, and in Japan. And it's a bestseller in Japan as well as here in the United States. And for, I have a... For obvious reasons, I suppose. Well, at Amazon.com, I have a, uh, a 70% uh, uh, approval rating, and in Barnes & Noble, it's an 80%. Uh, so there's about 25 to 30% uh, that don't agree with uh, uh, my uh, documents. But these are Navy documents. Uh, these aren't mine. These are... And any person can go to National 
archives in Washington, D.C. and see for themselves. Certainly that's the case, and of course um, a lot of people who have disputes with, with work like this isn't necessarily based on the documents or, or their disagreements with them so much as it's based on uh, people's uh, inability to cope with this type of information, I think. But uh, certainly the, the 70 to 80 percent of people who, are, uh, who do find this, uh, this book extremely valuable, I think that speaks for itself. And once again, it is available through Amazon and through, through many other book retailers uh, around the globe, as you say, uh, Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor. And, uh, and is Amazon the best way to get it, or is there a way to get it uh, that uh, benefits you more? Well, you, you, your bookstores could get it too, though uh, uh, I, I certainly favor the mom-and-pop uh, bookstores, but uh, Amazon.com is the easiest way to get the book. Uh, it'll deliver right to your door. Worldwide, right. absolutely. Well, I certainly hope that uh, that people do support their their mom and pop bookstores as well, because I think that's absolutely a, a dying culture, unfortunately, that we need to support. Otherwise, it will disappear forever. So uh, we're coming up on our final break here, and then we'll have a short uh, follow up just to wrap up this program with Robert Beast in it. So stay tuned right there, and we'll be right back here on Corbett Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. Back to the final minutes of Corbett Report Radio here for this Monday broadcast, talking to Robert B. Stinnett, author of Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor, detailing the, the true history uh, of what really happened at Pearl Harbor and the lead-up to that attack and documenting it in the Navy's own documents and records. So I hope you will pick up a copy and support the work. But just in the closing minutes here, uh, Mr. Stinnett, perhaps uh, you can tell us, uh, I'm not sure, has there been any uh, either actual movement or at least talk of movement on, on Capitol Hill or in um, congressional circles about any type of reinvestigation of what happened at Pearl Harbor because of works like your your uh, your book? Well, uh, the, uh, as you alluded to earlier, the, the 1995 uh, uh, Congress reopened uh, the uh, investigation of the Pearl Harbor. I guess that was the 11th uh, investigation, but they... They did not, uh, the, the congressmen, people did not uh, introduce any new the records that I found. And that I was successful in filing Freedom of Information Act uh, requests with the Navy, who uh, re, uh, released uh, thousands of documents to me. There's still thousands that are still uh, classified that I have not been able to see or, or as, as anyone else. In National Archives, and I've, I've, I've filed more FOIAs with them, and I hope to get those. So, uh, fortunately, the, uh, I, I found uh, the Overt Act of War plan that Roosevelt uh, uh, adopted, and that was really the bombshell of my book, A Day of Deceit. <clears throat> 
Bombshell indeed, and uh, I, to, to my own mind, that speaks a, a, a startling and, and rather condemning truth about uh, the extent to which governments will go to cover up um, their own records, government, again, being supposedly by and for the people, the extent they'll, they'll go to to cover up their own records of events that happened now over 70 years ago. So um, I think quite a sad indictment of uh, what has become the national security state and what continues to be a needlessly covered up information but, um, but once again, probably not surprising to people who have been uh, regular followers of this. Uh, of well, this, the same uh, thing was used in the Gulf War. In what sense? I say the same uh, provocations was used in the Gulf War, the weapons of mass destruction. They, they were, uh, George uh, W. Bush said that Saddam uh, Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, and he didn't. That got us into the uh, Gulf War, and then we had uh, false provocations in the Vietnam War. So this is uh, uh, President after Roosevelt uh, jumps on his ship and uh, picks up his ideas. Well, I think FDR probably did not uh, invent the the idea of a false flag in order to start a war, but certainly it has been used time and time again. And of course, we can go back to. The first Gulf War with the incubator baby story, which later came out, was completely and utterly fabricated by a PR company in Washington and all of the other uh, incidents uh, throughout history. So, again, I hope people will take a look at my own recent uh, video on the issue, Media Lies and the Onset of War, that goes through that and and many of these other uh, provocations that have been used to start wars time and again. And I also hope people will go to uh, uh, Amazon or whatever your book retailer of choice is to find Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor. So, Robert B. Stennett, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us tonight. It's my pleasure, and thank you for asking me. All right. So there he goes, Robert Stinnett, uh, the author of Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor. And we will be back here on the program tomorrow night talking to Dennis Riches, the uh, author of a blog about the nuclear a disaster at Fukushima and around the world, and we're going to be talking about a number of events related to that, so I hope you'll stay tuned for that and all the other broadcasts this week on Corbett Report Radio. Until then, thank you for listening and take care.